crime, but I'm, I'm leaving tomorrow and I'm, uh, apologies to, to those that are here and I won't be able to hear them. Um, I promise to read the papers. Um, I already read uh, uh, most of them. Secondly, I was asked to step in very late and it's, the paper is, is full of typos. Seth, when, when Seth asked me, asked me to, to step in, uh, I sent him the paper, he wrote, interesting, coming. <coughs> and it's very atypical, Seth, uh, uh, not to be critical. And then I got, uh, later I got his comments, and I understand now what he thinks about the paper, so <laughs> I should not be that optimistic. Um, okay, so a, a short, a short uh, summary. What, what fascinates me in the just war tradition is that um, it turns out that there are, if you take the principles of uh, the natural law by which uh, early jurists thought that the international, international community is ordered, um, you find out many just causes for war. Many, many, and we heard about Casper, and Casper is going to talk about it uh, later uh, this afternoon, Gerard talked talk about it uh, uh, just now. For example, redistributive wars seem to be on the face of it. If you take the principles of the international law in the, the uh, natural law by which uh, uh, the society of states is governed by uh, most early jurists, it seems on the face of it that a, a distributive wars are just. The same is true of preventive war. There is no reason to wait till you are attacked in order to fight back. Why should we uh, 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 wait till uh, uh, we, are, we are aggressed against if we can um, preempt um, or um, eliminate the, the threat before it was mature? Um, so the question is, how come that according to the received interpretation of the international law, um, there is only one just cause for war, and it is stated in Article 51 of the UN Charter, and this is defensive war, <coughs> while the notion of self-defense there should be read and is read by most of uh, um, international lawyers very narrowly, very strictly. And the notion of self-defense in Article uh, 51 is construed uh, on the basis of the notion of self-defense in criminal law, and, and this is very narrow. So how come that we have so, uh, 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 that under natural law, if you want, um, there are so many just causes for war, and under um, um, the positive interna international law, there is only one cause for war, and 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 um, and it is it is it is strictly construed on the basis of the domestic analogy to a politically organized society, politically organized society. And my answer is that under favorable favorable circumstances, um, um, states ought to waive their natural uh, 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 right to go to war, to go to non-defensive war. What are these uh, uh, favorite uh, uh, circumstances? 
I call them a minimally just symmetric anarchy. Symmetric anarchy is a situation in which war is Pareto inferior to bargaining, and a minimally just a symmetric anarchy is situation in which the agreement to waive all rights, natural rights to go to non-defensive war would minimize the violation of the natural law. I know that it sounds somewhat complicated, but I have only five minutes, so, so let, me, uh, let me ask Laura to continue my... Thank you. In my defense. In my defense. <laughs> well, let me then start by recap recapitulating the argument as I understand it. So basically under three circumstances. First is these minimally just symmetric anarchy. In light of what is presented in the paper as the morality of international politics, and then from a contractarian perspective, in under these three conditions, states ought to, in their resort to force, um, adhere to what is ca called the domestic society use at Bellum, the DS jam, which um, is the same or accords with international law, basically with very few exceptions, it only or none at all actually, it only allows for preemptive and reactive defensive war. So that is the argument basically. And mm -hmm. the um, why should states do that? Because under these three conditions that we accept this as the morality of international relations, that we have these minimally just symmetrical anarchy and that we take a contractarian point of view under these three conditions. Doing that, adhering to these DS jab or international law is mutually beneficial and it reduces violations of the legalistic paradigm which is what is in the paper posited as the morality of international politics. Um, what the paper accomplishes with that, and that's quite powerful, is basically saying that what we already do, what what is what sort of works in international in the international system, which is the legal paradigm, is also what from a morally point moral point of view we ought to be doing. And that's quite a powerful accomplishment because we all have this lingering sense that the uh, international law and the use of force is on morally thin ice. Um, based, but what the paper acknowledges is that the prescription to adhere to the legal paradigm or to DS jab as it is called, is contingent on these two things. On the one hand, on the fact that these circumstances, minimally just symmetric anarchy, is what we actually have. And the paper somewhat oscillates between at the beginning hinting at saying that's what we what is there. Like we actually minimally just symmetric anarchy is sort of empirically valid and then later prescribing that states ought to actually bring about these circumstances. Well, and, I will, and, and I will come back to whether that's a problem. And but then and the second sort of condition, which is the coherent of the argument that what is the presented as a legalistic paradigm, LP jab, is actually what is the morality of international politics. And I will sort of focus on these two conditions. And first on LP jab, what is that? Um, well, the Itzak starts out by bringing in different traditional and modern versions of it and quoting Walls and Walzer and Rawls and many fathers in the history of ideas of the legalistic paradigm. Um, but then I actually want to judge it on the mer of, on its own merit because I think what you ultimately end up presenting as LP Jeb is quite a f like a good distance away even from Walzer. So basically, what I feel um, you're doing in the paper is presenting on the one hand the legal paradigm DS Jeb, and then sort of saying the established antagonists to that are the cosmopolitans or the human rights-based approaches, and then carving out space between those two for a third theory of aggression, which is 
which you refer to as LP jab. And like the first sort of question I had is, does it really still make sense to call it LP jab if it's kind of far away from what we all associate with that? But that's sort of a minor point. Um, the first sort of question I would have, is it actually successful, the endeavor to carve out space between the legal paradigm of the resort to force and then sort of the established antagonist, the cosmopolitans? Um, because <laughs> A, your LP jab is based on individual rights. You say that ultimately states' rights are grounded in collective rights to self-determination, which are grounded in individual rights. And if push comes to shove, the paper is quite clear, individual rights are the ones that count, that trump. And when the paper then discusses the precise distance between cosmopolitanism and LP jab, it's sort of vague, saying, <laughs> saying that, um, yeah, that they take that LPDEB takes states' rights more seriously. So it's, that remains a little bit unclear. The two delineations that are provided between cosmopolitanism and LPDEB have problems as well. The first is the rejection of the consequentialist reasoning of cosmopolitans. So um, LPDEB is presented as being in that sense really different because it rejects the notion that overall maximization of rights is at all a valid standard. Um, mm -hmm. But then I think, I mean, at the end of the argument, and I will come back to that as well, why LP sort of yields to the legal paradigm is justified with the consequentialist standard as well. The sort of maximization, maximization of mutual benefit and the sure. minimization of violations of LP. Mm -hmm. And if LP isn't that different from cosmopolitanism after all, then what we end up is a justification of overall maximization of individual rights. Maybe I'm not getting how the contractarian analysis that gets into that at some point sort of um, neutralizes the consequentialism, mm -hmm. but in my view, Ultimately, this paper makes a consequentialist argument. Um, the second delineation that is offered, and that might actually make a difference, is that LP doesn't talk about individual rights per se and the right to life per se, but the right to a meaningful life, which is stipulated as only happening in a political community. According to yeah. Walter and Wolf. Yeah, but also, yeah, also according to your LP. But, um, and I think that's a meaningful difference, but then if we ask what difference does that actually make in the context of this particular argument where we're trying to figure <coughs> out when is resort to force justified or not, I mean, it seems it doesn't make a very big difference. Looking at the table, it suggests it only makes difference in the sort of marginal case where wars are only about territorial boundaries and about nothing else. So I sort of, I would, as my first sort of criticism, I would say I'm not entirely sure, like the LPJAP is sort of a theory of aggression in its own right. Mm -hmm. But um, the only salient difference that I think remains after all kinds of scrutinization between LP, JAB, and cosmopolitanism is that LP, JAB allows for partiality of states mm -hmm. and doesn't think that it's in any way problematic. And I, there I actually come to the more fundamental problem I have with LP, JAB. Because why is that that it allows for partiality? It's that it is grounded in the state of nature. Basically, if I ask the paper, where do I get the justification why LPJAB is the morality of international politics? And the only justification I could find is that it springs from a Lockean state of nature. That's right. Um, contrary to DSJAB, the law which um, supposes, presumes some kind of political organization. But I think, I do understand that philosophers think the state of nature has some kind of, bears some kind of moral weight. But in the in the context, <laughs> but in the context of an argument about <coughs> trying to come up with a prescription of how states should act in a certain political environment, certainly it's not the state of nature that we look should look at because the international system isn't one, right? It, is, it does have a certain degree of political organization, and we don't aspire for it to resemble the state of nature. Quite the contrary, to the extent that it does, that is usually considered problematic. 
And I think the fact that there ha this has implications for the argument, um, if I may quote you at a certain length. So the paper argues that decent states, and that's an assumption, most states are decent, might disagree on their entitlements because there is partiality, error, and bias. That means even decent states that respect LP might go to war in order to enforce what they consider their LP rights. In the long run, crimes of aggression are bound to happen in a politically unorganized society. So I get how you get from partiality, error, and bias to conflict. Um, if, if we accept states are partial and ought to be, and that's all right, there will be conflict. <laughs> but then how you get from conflict to inevitability of aggression, that is, I think, a the fact that <laughs> you just accept that transition is a result of the fact that you have the state of nature in mind and underestimate the degree of political organization that there is in the international system. Um, let me give you an example. Um, I mean, it's a truism that there is no enforcement mechanism, that states ultimately, that we still have a self-help um, system. But beyond thinking of an institution that might actually, with the use of force, enforce states' claims in, instead of them, what you would just need is a higher authority or an authority that has interpretive capacities that reduces the epistemic problems. A large part of the argument in favor of your ultimately DS jab is that it reduces problems of bias and error and lack of inf information. So what you basi basically need and what you underestimate is the capacity of organization to reduce these epistemic problems. And that's sort of a step below and much less problematic or demanding than aspiring for higher authority that enforces with the use of force the rights of states and therefore gets over self-help totally. So I think basically, as a result, your argument is vulnerable to the contention that DSJAB, even under the circumstances that you proclaim, is not the best way available because you underestimate the capacity of organization. However, even if we accepted that what you say, that these epistemic problems are just a given and we don't think about organizations so we can't get over them. Even then, I still have a problem with the paper's contention that ultimately, under the circumstances that you describe, what is prohibited under DS, JAB, the law, ultimately is also what would, be, would not be justified under LP. So basically what you're saying is that given all these information problems and error and bias, mm -hmm these two actually approximate each other. Right? That's what you say at the end. And I think um, that is not true, because even if it might not be better, it might be better not to wage certain wars that you might be, have a right to under LP because you have these certain circumstances with the information problem or whatever, they are still desirable under the code of LP. right? So the only way you can make this argument, if you accept that the overall consequentialist point, that given that states have these problems and the international system is like that, trumps your your own sort of value standard that you erect under LP, mm -hmm. right? So I think that's basic. That claim is either really, really consequentialist, or you should maybe just drop it because it sort of is in tension with your argument before. One last point, um, sort of Thanks related. Tough. <laughs> Related to that is um, basically the obvious question, why accept or reify the conditions that you call minimally just symmetrical anarchy? You say yourself that distributions of power are fragile, so the symmetry might just vanish at any point in time anyway, right? But why accept um, minimally, minimal justice and anarchy? I mean, it's just a different way of phrasing my criticism that... Um, 
why should we why not aim higher, so to speak? Mm -hmm. And basically what I suspect you're doing is sort of making a circular argument. <coughs> you prescribe conditions which allow for DSJAP to be the best approximation of LP, uh, but this is entirely contingent on <coughs> these just um, in its justification on the presence of those very uh, conditions. So in a way that is circular, right? You don't pr provide an outside justification why these conditions ought to be here. So let me wrap up. Um, basically, my con conclusion or my question is that if we have, as you say, rational, mostly decent states that accept LP, the legalistic paradigm, as the goal and as the morality of international politics, but then take seriously the capacity of states to organize themselves and this the international system to graduate from the state of nature, so to speak. And by, so reducing the ep epistemic problem, maybe we can aim higher than DSJAP. So what I think is ultimately it's not justified properly. Response? But thank you for the Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for the comments. No, these are really great comments. Um, I, th I think that I will focus on two points. First of all, the difference between um, LP and cosmopolitanism. Look, I prefer a state that will, that w I prefer a system of uh, decent states that are partial in my sense. Why? Because I want my state, state to prefer me on others since other states, other states can prefer their own citizens. So partiality is in is part or is an aspect of the moral standing of states. Now you say totally correctly that I don't defend the uh, international, the, the way early jurists um, conceive the law of nature by which uh, uh, the society of states is, is ordered. It seems to me to have a great intuitive appeal. We don't, sorry, First of all, I want my state to uh, uh, to help its poor before it goes to it before it it levels uh, any help to others uh, to other to other states poor. Mm -hmm. And and I, it seems to me that early Jewists got, got it right. So and I, I agree that I don't defend it, but partiality must be part of our conception of international society. States are decent or statehood is such that states are partial and partiality in this sense is not morally flawed. I agree that I don't say much about this in the paper but I can omit some, so, so many other things that they say there that I, I, I'll, um, I'll re-emphasize that. <coughs> Um, the second question is why, okay, the, the accusation of circular, circularity. This is something that I don't accept. I say the following. Under which conditions the, um, the current international law, and it has, my, the paper has an explanatory ambition, namely to explain why the international law is, is inter the post World War II internationally. The, the UN Charter, uh, um, uh, uh, Article 51, are interpreted in the way they are interpreted. 
namely in accordance with the, there is only just cause for war, self-defense, and the notion of self-defense is very strictly, very narrowly interpreted. This is something that I don't understand in light of the wonderful works that uh, uh, those who, who I call purists, uh, uh, cosmopolitans, uh, uh, produced in the last 10, 15 years. Great work, just causes for war would be a, a much more, much more proliferate, and we don't find it in the international law, and we don't find it in the international community. Why? The answer is the following. The drafters imagine the world, or they dream about a world which can be described as minimally just a symmetric anarchy. They take, <coughs> they take anarchy as given. Now, we might aim higher, that's right, we might have, but they take anarchy as, as given, and they think that once, when we talk about, about uh, using force, this presumption is justified. I wouldn't like, this is, we are going to hear, you are going to hear uh, Jeff's paper uh, tomorrow, he's going to uh, aim for more, namely international institutions that will reduce the biases will reduce a, a, a lack, of, lack of information and so on and so forth. To my mind, this will have many other problems. This organization, this a, a, a thicker organized a society would have problematic, problematic consequences in other places. And moreover, when states think about using force, namely when states think about uh, their own defense, their own security, they should not trust on others, they should not trust on transnational institutions, and, and that's why anarchy should be presumed. Um, and the drafters uh, prohibited um, uh, any non, all non-defensive wars in order, because they believe that they, they live, or they, they want to live, in a minimally uh, just symmetric anarchy. And let me just add another point that you didn't, you didn't press me on, but this is something that I should, should make uh, clearer. Um, uh, people might believe, I, mean, I think that Casper believes, Gerard believes, that we live in uh, a, an unjust, this is not a minimally just a symmetric anarchy because the inequalities are obviously, uh, 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 the inequality is obviously unfair. Um, my response to that would be that they might be right, but that this cannot, states would ought to waive their right to go to these wars because even if you are right, there are so many people that disagree, who disagree with you, as you have just said about Poggy. There are so many people who disagree about, about that we have a problems, problems of information in applying the natural, now I want to, to call LP the natural law, okay? The natural law permissions to go to war. Because since we don't have a good conception of justice, we don't converge on this, on, on a theory of justice, we have a kind of second order reason to waive our right to use force on the basis of a justice consideration. So this is explanatory. If, the inter if, I, if I'm right that the international law should be uh, interpreted in the way that I present it, namely, it prohibits all non-defensive wars. 
and if I write that natural law allows a lot of them, then the, when the drafters uh, prohibited these wars, they prohibited uh, them on the basis of the thought that we live in a minimally just symmetric anarchy, or that we are able to establish this uh, organization, this arrangement, uh, a very or this would be the best moral interpretation of, of the code to which states submitted themselves. Well, I would say that, um, that at that time that might have been... Would you like me to say something about consequentialism? Yeah, maybe that's a better idea. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, the difference between contractualism and consequentialism is, is, in general, not very clear. I would say that uh, contractarianism uh, is, uh, insists on Pareto efficiency rather than on aggregate, uh, maximizing aggregate uh, utility or something like, like that. So all states should benefit or all parties should benefit from the contract. This is one point. The other point is that it's not, well, I think that you, talk, you don't talk about consequentialism when you try to uh, identify my position with you are talking about rule consequentialism. Yeah. And rule co consequentialism is, you don't know exactly what is going on there. <laughs> what, do they, what, what do they mean by saying, what are, what are the best rules? The rules that um, uh, are followed in the best outcome? Is this the rule that I have to follow now in, in the worst outcome? Wh what type of rules? How do I find the rules? When I talk about an agreement, an actual agreement, I'm talking about something that, and I'm talking about something that that is real, that we know exactly what what it's going. Well, on your first point, that you said that, um, that basically one of the normative momentum of minimally just symmetric anarchy comes from the fact that the drafters envisaged envisaged that to be the international system. I think. We have evolved past that, right, past 1945. Um, the system has gotten past that, and I don't think that in itself would um, That's right, would give enough for the pr making this the prescriptive yeah, state I of agree. affairs. So if, if Jeff might be able to uh, convince us that there is a better arrangement, yeah. then I would give up. But I think that there are many other problems in this type of institutional right. cosmopolitan. And on your point of distinguishing between different types of consequentialism, uh, that's true. Like I wasn't saying you are ultimately doing the same as cosmopolitanists. I'm just saying that the rather rigorous re rejection of the of, cosmo of consequentialism as an aspect of cosmopolitanism uh, becomes that's a bit yeah. odd at the end because yeah. it is ultimately. Moreover, one of my points in the paper is to show that, um, in fact, when you read Walzer and Rawls properly, or if you if you uh, develop the principles that motivate their projects, you come up with minor differences. Um, one of them is partiality, the other is taking sovereignty more seriously than cosmopolitan. But humanitarian interventions and, and, and econo economic wars and preemptive war, uh, preventive wars, all these wars should be, on the basis of the principles that mo motivate their, their projects, should be should be uh, allowed, or their causes must be might be just. We're going to try to keep the uh, one finger uh, jumping the queue system, but it is on trial. Uh, 
So there can only be one or two, and uh, they have to be genuinely short and snappy and genuinely relevant. Uh, otherwise. otherwise, I'm not going to let you keep going. I'm going to cut you off. And it, it, I, I think a sort of cross-examination is terrific, but you can't do that with a finger. You have to get in line. So I'll, I'll let you follow up when your proper turn comes, but you can't uh, take over with the finger, okay? So I need to get a line up here. All right, Jay, Ryan, Jeff McMahon. Uh, sorry, I'm forgetting your name now, but I know who I mean. Uh, <laughs> Emerton. Uh, Graham. Okay, that's plenty to start in. And, uh, all right. Uh, Cheney Ryan. Cheney Ryan, University of Oregon. Um, I, I really like, you know, the discussion you talk, but let me maybe pose a question uh, in terms of a contrast between how I read Walter and what you're doing. You know, when Walter talks about the war convention, particularly when he talks about uh, relations between soldiers, it has this sort of sense of it's kind of filtering from the bottom up. He talks about how, you know, soldiers are sort of stuck in this thing together and they kind of reach this, these sort of agreements about kind of minimizing things like that. And, and sort of the notion of convention generally has a notion of sort of, you know, I'm saying something that comes about more naturally. But, but, but this, it, it seems to me the notion of a contract between states is, is a little bit different than that, and I'm wondering whether it really addresses some of the kinds of objections that you would have. And let me draw, draw a parallel based on my own um, you know, history of low-intensity warfare with my institution. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, I'm constantly told that the department heads have agreed to do something together or that the deans have agreed something to do together, or that the PAC-10 has agreed to do something together. And I always kind of feel like, well, those are all institutions that in some sense have legitimacy in my eyes. I'm not sort of saying, and I'm saying that, that they should be abolished. But it always strikes me that that only has a little bit to do with what I would want to do as a professor or something like that. It's not irrelevant to it. But it certainly doesn't answer the question of sort of what are my full moral obligations and stuff. And so I wonder whether, maybe this is implicit in your account of the state, but I really wonder whether the fact that states would agree, you know, not to go to, not to, go to war in, or, or, or whatever, you know, and, and you know, one of the problems is, is a problem that I've talked about and, and, and Jeff talks about too and other people about, you know, what, what if there's clearly a just cause and the state, because the problem is that states don't, it's not that they just agree not to go to war over certain things, they also tell other people not to do anything about it. You know what I'm saying? They prevent other people from taking actions, which is a stronger thing. So, 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 and I'm saying this probably because I'm really wondering whether it, uh, someone could say, okay, you can get that agreement between states, but the, the law, the, the international law of conflict, or when conflict is appropriate, maybe should be broader than that. Mm -hmm. um, well, this is, this is, I think a problem with every law, isn't it? Namely, it might be the best law. Well, this is something that Jeff told us, uh, taught us in, 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 in the context of, of the laws of war, but I think that this is a genuine feature of every law. It is general, and in many circumstances, you are justified, you are justified in violating it. And if a war is mala prohibita rather than mala in se. If it is, if the war is 
um, is prohibited just because we agreed to prohibit it, then the temptation to go to war, uh, to adjust what you take to be a just war, or a clearly just war, um, is greater. And in my framework, this is the framework, the framework that I'm trying to develop, you might, you might violate the other party rights that you want to go to this war against it. It is protected by the law, and the law is the best law. That's why they have the moral right that you will comply with the law, and still you are justified in, in violating it. Because it will bring the best consequences. So it's very important to me that, that the law is, in a sense, the acceptance of the law is effective. Namely, it generates genuine moral rights. But in many circumstances, we have uh, we are justified in violating <coughs> one's rights. This happens a lot. And, and th my argument would low, low, lower the bar, namely, if these wars are merely mala prohibita, namely, under the natural law, uh, um, they are just, then the t temptation to go to these wars are very uh, is, very, is very big, and as you know, many, I think that Larry May is not here, but this was his argument last year in, in the Oxford War Group. He thinks that humanitarian intervention should be, well, he's very skeptical about humanitarian interventions, am I right? He's very skeptical, and uh, no, I thought that you, you just denied that. Okay, so he's very skeptical, and he's skeptical because this, this permission to go to, to, uh, to uh, um, intervene in the internal affairs of another state is very dangerous once it becomes the norm. Okay, and and that's why he would love a certain state to go and to save people, but he would admit that the law should be different. Jeffing man. Can you clarify? Is it in all circumstances, or he designs designs circumstances in which impartiality would be better to your children also? Overall, if and this is a, his empirical claim. Well, I don't take, take a limited case. I was going to I was going to introduce the complexities in my next oh, remark, but just take take the case of say saving. And if I 
limit it to a thing about saving lives. And I can either save my one child or your two ch children. And uh, you can save one of your children as opposed to two of mine. And we, we, we all act on the basis of this uh, permission. In general, each of our children will do less well. Mm -hmm. Because fewer children will be saved. Mm -hmm. I was going to say the cost of that in the case of the parent-child relationship, do you think that that relation has a certain kind of intrinsic significance that it would be impossible to uh, recognize and sustain in a world in which people didn't give this kind of priority to their children? The relation couldn't be what it, what it is. It's important that it should be what it is. But the relation between citizen and state isn't like that at all. Mm -hmm or state to citizen, I should say. It's, it's a purely instrumental significance uh, in a way that the parent-child relation, I think, is not. So I just wanted to, to call this feature of your claim to your attention in the light of your suggestion that what contractarianism looks to is Pareto optimality. That's what distinguishes it from consequentialism. So the, the partialist view of course, it doesn't maximize, but it also fails the Pareto test. So you're saying you want all states to uh, act with respect to their own citizens in a way which, when the principle is universalized, is mm -hmm. Pareto inferior to mm -hmm. uh, an impartial rule. Um, that's right. The question is whether this arrangement that you imagine is feasible, and what are the constraints of feasibility? So, I, I, I tend to believe that we are facing a prisoner dilemma problem in, in the perfect arrangement. Namely, under this arrangement, our children will do less <coughs> well because we'll be tempted, we won't trust it, each other. We won't, I won't trust you that you will help my, my children and you won't trust me that I will help you. So, and, and there are some feasibility constraints. Uh, the best outcome, mutual disarmament, for example, is presented in my paper as unfeasible. I, pre I presume that it is unfeasible because there is a kind of suspicion that we cannot overcome. And the suspicious, sorry, suspicion that we cannot overcome, and the suspicion is rational, in a sense. Okay, so. Okay, um, Patrick Emerson. the ethics of air conditioning? What's I think that there is. It feels good. Oh, yeah. Are people hot or cold? Freezing is hot. Freezing, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you need us always freezing, but. No, I'll give her my. You can't. If we, it'll get really hot. So there's lots of people who are cold. You've got jumpers, really. Thank you for taking some of the heat. Okay, good. Successful revolt. All right, Patrick Everton. I found the paper very interesting, and I sort of like the structure of the argument. I guess I had a couple of sort of questions. I'm not sure if it's a little louder, maybe. Um, with vindicating sort of contemporary international <coughs> law, so like a kind of explanatory vindication, I think one problem 
seems to me is that contemporary international law has human rights as well as self-determination as sort of one of the foundational principles. And that puts a lot of burden on your notion of a decent state and a, a mutually just a, a anarchic situation. And the, the more, like kind of an empirical burden, and the more you look around and see there are states that don't meet the human rights side of things, the more you're, you're getting a story that only justifies Article 51, but doesn't justify references in the chart, for example, to human rights. So, so there's, and uh, another way that sort of a... So why does it challenge the argument? So if you have, if I'm talking about the interpretation of the law, not, not the reality. But if the law also puts in certain human rights mandates, which okay. it seems to, and you end up with an outcome that extreme human rights violators are immune to various sorts of intervention, including military intervention as the last resort. You get a case where potentially you haven't, you haven't vindicated the international law, you've only vindicated Article 51, but Article 51 doesn't stand there on its own. There's other stuff going on as well. So, mm -hmm. which means that that explanatory project potentially comes under pressure. Maybe you have a revisionary project where we should ditch the human rights parts in favour of the, the self-determination parts. Um, and I was also thinking if another sort of issue of empirical burden, if it turns out that it's not, a, not symmetrical enough, so some states in fact can resort to force with impunity, or if it turns out that it's not proto-optimal after all, is the contract still binding? No. Okay. I, yeah, I said that the, the moral, moral standing of the contract it, it does not relativize it, it does not weaken its moral standing, but it makes it um, context-dependent. And regarding the, the, the human rights issue, what you say, in fact, that the contract should uh, allow humanitarian intervention when, something like that, and what I'm saying is that it should allow humanitarian intervention only if um, rights violation is going on, and it is clear, and the clarity here is part, I think, of the ethos of, of, of it's obviously part of the Walzer uh, approach to humanitarian intervention, and it, it seems to me also, I'm, not, I'm, I'm a very poor lawyer, but, but it seems to me part of the ethos of, of the international law as well. Uh, can I on, on the issue of the context dependence, um, one of the reasons for going to the contract is epistemic burdens on the natural law. And so we go to the contract. This, yeah. But if the contract this, is... I, this is one of the... I, I'm talking about minimally just. And this is a very general, very general condition, and I substantiate it. That I, I give one example, which seems to me pretty relevant because it, it seems to me somehow close to our reality, that the epistemic, the, the, our ability to, the ability of partial states to apply these, yeah. these permissions is, is restricted. That, yeah, I mean, that part seems plausible, but if the contract, the bindingness of the contract is context dependent, and there are epistemic burdens on knowing that the context is such that compliance really is quite nice optimal. No, okay, that's right. I, I should think about that. Okay, that's good. I, I, my tendency is to say, try to interpret the, the contract as widely as possible. Okay. Uh, and 
it's also related to the, the, the right conception of state legitimacy. What, when would you like to say that the state is LP-respecting or it's bound by, it respects the international law? I would say try to lower the bar as far as you can yep. the, in, order to, in order not to benefit from the doubt. Because you should suspect yourself that you are, that you are trying to, to um, advance your, your partial interest. This is part of your nature as a state. Go ahead, Juan. Um, I, I kind of shared Jane's uh, worry a bit that this might be... Um, well, I mean, the worry with contracts sometimes is that you get out of them precisely what you put in. As you specify the, the conditions in such a way that you, you get the outcome that you want. And, and this seems to, I mean, it just seems to, your argument seems to hinge on there being precisely the, the right number of bad apples in the international system to prompt people to maintain their kind of separate armies, but not enough bad apples that it, it prompts them to give up some of their uh, permissions in certain ways. And it, and it has to be just enough uh, anarchy and just enough decency of this to go through, but not too much anarchy, not too much, de not too much cooperation, not too much decency that we can yield anything stronger. There's always, always a worry that, that that's ad hoc rather than, than reflective of some independent kind of set of criteria. Um, with that in mind, could you say a bit more about the, the, kind of the, the content of decency and anarchy here? I mean, because presumably decency <coughs> something hinges on what it means to be decent in your scheme, whether you're using it in a, in a specifically rules-in way or maybe in some kind of looser sort of way. But if you've got a society of minimally decent, of course, then that rules out certain kinds of grounds for things. So it rules out the fact to be minimally decent, the state will have to meet some kind of basic threshold. And so it would rule out the need for certain kinds of intervention, just kind of yeah. by the way this is framed. And the same with the conception of anarchy. If the, if the idea is to, is to track international law, or the, the ideas that were in people's minds as they, as they kind of found it in international law or whatever, then you do wonder whether things have, have just, in terms of cooperation, moved on a bit from... From, from what there was, and so the, the reason we're worried about the anarchy component is because it, it just seems true that anarchy is no longer, you know, the. I mean, it, well, it's the kind of anarchy that exists now is, is compatible with all kinds of cooperation, including mm -hmm. military and security sure. cooperation. Sure. Um, well, that operation, that cooperation doesn't doesn't exist in, in violation of international law, presumably. It just means just international law changes to reflect the, the cooperation, the, yeah. the rationality of cooperation. So these, these are very big challenges. A theory of decency is, is, is a subject for a book. I, I, when I'm talking about decency, I'm talking about states that, respects the right, that respect the rights of other states. And they partial because they, they care about their own rights. And they, they can interpret their behavior in terms of rights. Namely, they, they would use foros in order to defend the rights. They, they would not say, look, you don't have the right to exist, or you are a heretic, or something like that. Okay? So, and this is a very loose notion. I, I, it might be the case that we should work with these loose notions in order to, to, to get to the right interpretation, to the right moral interpretation of, of the contract. Um, so, and they give, by, in, in the end of the paper, I'm trying to, to say that there is another, it's a suggestion, a very tentative suggestion. <clears throat> you can read from a state's, a state's behavior that it, it respects the pluralism that is the basis 
of the international law according to roads and roads. Um, this is one, this is, would be my answer to the first uh, challenge, but, but it's a huge issue, of course. The second one, <coughs> um, regarding anarchy, this is, uh, it's a, uh, anarchy is a, a case in which, uh, is a situation in which um, states cannot trust any transnational institution to defend itself. So once it comes to, uh, uh, it realizes that its right is violated, illegally violated, it cannot appeal to any transnational institution in order to enforce its own rights. Again, loose, but it seems to me helpful. It's a self-help based regime in terms of defensive rights. Yep. Just to clarify quickly, so the decency idea you used there made no reference to the internal composition of these states. What makes them decent on the count you have there is just how they deal with other states. No, now I have, you're right, I didn't, I, I, just, I, I just mentioned one very helpful condition. Now, the international law, since it is very sensitive to, to human rights, you would have to have another um, a prong which talks about it's the justice of the state itself or it, the, the extent to which it, 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 it uh, uh, respects human rights within it, of course. And this is part of the Rolsian the picture, so. Victor Tadros. Hi, thanks for the paper. So, I don't know much about contractarianism anymore. I thought I did once. And I <laughs> so, uh, uh, so let me ask more about it in a second. So one question is... Raising doubts is also is <laughs> always good. So one question is why, why you think that the contractualist picture should converge on reality. So we have the international law set up in a certain way, and it'd be really surprising, wouldn't it, if there was a moral explanation for why it is the way it is now, given that we've got this massive inequality of power and wealth and so on. And suddenly, you know, we actually converged on the moral view, right? I mean, that would be a shock to find out. You would Can expect I respond? the opposite, wouldn't you? You'd expect the law before you elaborate, the before you elaborate. Only for Americans, right? That's the result you'd expect. So I, that's, I, a, that's one kind of... The problem. same contract, exactly. The same contract. This is part of the thesis. You have, you have to be happy with this is part of the thesis. The moral standing of the contract is context dependent. The same contract might be a, a, a slave, a, a contract between masters and slaves. Think about it's, it, it, there is only one just cause for war, and we can do everything we want in order to, to exploit you, well, exploit, and say, so, even under the empirical conditions we're in at the moment, you would expect that the contractualist view would be more revisionist than your um, explanation of it implies, right? Because we would expect a, 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 a rule that was um, pro-optimal. But there's no reason to believe that the actual rules that we have will be pro-optimal given inequalities of power. Sure. It would be really surprising if we got that result. Mm -hmm. So that's one kind of question, is that it's just how revisionist you should be. Why shouldn't we endorse more kind of Gerhard Kasper kind of rules to make it more, uh, more just? The, the second question is, is more about the contractualist kind of story. So 
Um, I always think of contractualists as wanting to appeal to respect for persons or something like that rather than just outcomes. But your version of contractualism seems like it's moving towards um, just thinking about the outcomes, that they're creating optimal outcomes for the people. No, so it's a bit like Geneva's point then. Your option just seems open to consequentialists. You can just say, we're just aiming at a distribution that is Pareto optimal. No, I, 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 it doesn't, doesn't seem like it's a particularly contractualist kind of story. So if, you, if you're going to go down that kind of Rawlsian contractualist line, then I want to know more about why respect for persons or respect for um, self-determining states or something <coughs> like that should lead to this set of rules rather than just that they're in fact better for everyone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so first of all, I, you can take my paper to be a revisionist interpretation of uh, the current system and say, since I agree with Poggy uh, and I agree with Casper uh, and Gerhard, then this, this, uh, this contract is invalid, it has no moral standing, and we should go. There are much more just causes for war right now. Okay? So I'm with you on this one. I just say, if you want a moral interpretation, and we take the, uh, the Charter and Article 51 to be a kind of progress. If it is progress, it is progress because it has these, the contract has these features. But maybe now, because of the massive inequalities, terrorism is justified. Sol Smilansky wrote it uh, before Casper's uh, uh, and, and Gerhard's paper. He says, look, we, we might justify terrorism in order to alert public opinion to the fact that we could just send 20% more medicine, more medicine to, to, to the third world, to Africa, and we we'll be able to save thousands of people. Okay, so this is a, a, an implication of the argument. Now, we are talking... I'm not sure, look, I'm talking about the international system and, and states, owed. it is according to the Walter Rose picture, states owed to um, um, create um, an institutional arrangement that expresses um, respect to, to persons. So this is not the job. In, in our division of labor, this is not the job of the international, the international system, and it's not the job of the, um, the rules of war, of course. This is something yeah, just, Then just bite the bullet and say, this is just a, uh, an account which is open to consequentialists. We just wanted to just get a correct optimal well, I, I distinguish set of results. For, and, and, uh, and maybe I should mention also that, did I say it in this paper? That, that fairness should be part of the... I don't remember. So, fairness should be part of it. No, in my other papers, it always should be fair and mutually beneficial. Andrew Williams. I like Janina's uh, comments very much. And I, I think um, one of the features I liked was that she um, drew our attention to the fact that there could be intermediate positions between the two options you've looked at. So you look at um, an account of the grounds for war, which is broad, and an account which is narrow. And then you say that the broader account, the one which gives more grounds for war, 
will be poverty in terms of indirectly, collectively self-defeating. Like we'd all be better off if we governed our conduct by a narrower account. And then, as I understood Janina's comments, she said, well, these two options are not exhaustive. There could be um, a further possibility. And a specific uh, possibility she mentioned was that I thought there could be some international organization to assess the legitimacy of grants for war. And you were skeptical that there would be any such organization that wouldn't be beset by the same problems of collective self-defeat. But, but then I wanted to say, well, separate that specific claim from the more general claim which she raised, which is that couldn't there be some other um, third, fourth possibility? So <coughs> then, just to pursue that, so, supposing somebody said, well, you, you may be right about this organization kind of arbitrating disputes, but suppose that um, the international community could reach some agreement on general causes for war. They found out that there was a correlation between certain types of regime or poverty, whatever facts social scientists tell us, are correlated with war. You might think, why doesn't that count when people make the types of ex-ante agreements that you have in mind? You think, think of a parallel kind of case when Nozick talks about people not having the right to enforce um, the law of nature once the dominant protection agency has emerged. He says it would be very risky for them to do that, but in return, they get some free protection. So supposing somebody said a parallel case in the international case, right? in return, states not only waive their right to enforce um, their rights according to the broad account of the grounds for war, they also take on a duty to do something about the causes of war. I, I don't think. And then, now let's say, why should they agree to your contract rather than this other contract, which involves not just the waiver, but the acquisition of a duty to do something to reduce the probability of war. Couldn't, couldn't there be such a, uh, an agreement? You should, you should come up with such an alternative agreement. I don't think that the international law cannot be improved. This is not something that I, I might imply that. Uh, if you, if it should be in, in it should be the best one that we. You're right. So I should weaken this. I should weaken this this thing. You you might lawyers all 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 the time think about how to improve our legal system. So I totally agree that there might be a better system. There might. I didn't. I didn't argue that there is no. It would be foolish to argue that there there cannot be. Uh, but this is the best that we could come up with uh, after World <coughs> War Two, I, I think. Um, and maybe, maybe, uh, I, I, as I claimed, uh, uh, there, 
other other suggestions uh, I, I didn't find them particularly appealing because I found some faults in them but you might come with a be undertaking a duty without instituting a kind of kind of transnational authority this might be interesting this might be interesting. The question is whether we can preserve the partiality of states that we want. How? Okay. So there are, there are many trades of, and, and, and this is the job of these people that work on international law. This is exactly their job. Okay, we suddenly have uh, t t two one fingers. I thought maybe I had frightened everyone to death. So <laughs> thank you for being so cooperative. But of course, it is okay to have some. So Patrick and Guy, one fingers. Um, I think uh, the current settlement does have this. The states have a duty to contribute to the work of ECOSOC. And ECOSOC's function, among other things, is to reduce the causes of war. So I think you can very easily embrace that point. So this is, in fact, the, the, the agreement. The agreement you envision. Okay. A friendly suggestion in the way of weakening your uh, uh, claim would be not to say that this is the best possible uh, uh, Pareto uh, uh, maximal uh, solution, but to say that this is better than the other one. So it's an improvement. Uh, better to having no contract. Or to having the LP. Uh, Whichever initials you use for that one. Yeah. yeah. That's not you said well. Oh, there were so many typos that it's the, the original the original intention was not clear. Sometimes known as jazz. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, one more one figure. Is that the reason for using uh, the word minimal? Uh, I don't understand actually why the is minimal symmetrical. But what does minimal means there? Minimal symmetrical. <coughs> minimal, minimal, why it's minimally just symmetrical? Mm -hmm. It should. It it is mi uh, minimal because um, it, it's just containing some neutrality and some expectation. Because I don't, I don't expect what else? states in states or parties in the partial partial states in the state of nature. Um, I don't expect them to not to believe that their rights, the rights that they have, their entitlements, were not violated. They, they might well believe that, and they might be right, but <coughs> um, had they been totally impartial, they would, they would more doubtful. And had they been totally impartial, if had they been totally impartial, they would have been more doubtful, and they wouldn't use force in order to enforce the right. They would negotiate, but they wouldn't. Uh, you wouldn't uh, infor, uh, use force. Satozor. Yeah, yeah, Satozor. Um, <coughs> um, a couple of quick points, if I, if I may. On. You talked about the difference between the contractualist position and rule consequentialism. And one of the worries you had about rule consequentialism, reasonably enough, is what ought you to do in those circumstances when breaking the rule better serves the values that the rule is supposed to promote um, than following the rule would do. And so you sort of implied that this is an advantage of the contractualist account, that it doesn't have, to, doesn't have that. Well, you, you gave this as a criticism 
of the consequence of the rule consequentialist account. And I just wanted to say there's a symmetrical problem for the contractualist, especially with this idea of the, the hypothetical contract, um, which is essentially when the, the hypothetical contract doesn't work out in my favor, um, why should I obey it? The, the claim is that because of my ex-ante hypothetical agreement, and that reminds me of, is it Jerry Cohen or Ronald Dorkin, a hypothetical contract isn't worth the paper it's not written it's on? Jerry Cohen. Ronald Dorkin. Yeah, so... Um, and so especially when we're talking about death, or matters of life and death, you know, why should my ex-ante agreement matter at all? So you've got, you've got symmetrical problems with both approaches. So that's just the first observation. The second observation is um, specifically about um, the, sort of the, the way you argue about the relationship between DS and LPJAB, or however we call them. Uh, and one of the things you say is that pretty much any rights that would be attributed to a sovereign in um, uh, a... Uh, minimally sort of an organized society, um, in a state of nature would devolve to individuals. So individuals could, could enforce those rights. And you use this to say, um, yeah, insofar as a sovereign could do this in an organized society, it'd be, it'd be permissible for ordinary people to do it in a disorganized society, in a locking mm -hmm. state of nature. Mm -hmm. And I thought that doesn't seem to me to be Just quite right, because, you know, so the example of punishment. Sure. Um, we could say that in the state of nature you don't have a right to punish people because of the risk that you're going to do it wrongly. Um, but by instituting the, the institutions, you do gain that right. So I thought that that argumentative move um, presupposed a particular theory about the relationship between mm -hmm. institutional reasons and um, reasons in the state of nature. So I, I agree. I didn't, I, I didn't say that uh, contractarianism is not vulnerable to the problem of... Uh, um, um, on the spot violation. And it might, as I said to Cheney, it might be justified. So this is not the problem with the rule consequentialism. The problem with rule consequentialism that, <coughs> uh, um, first of all, you don't know what the rules are. You, you can't figure out. It's very hard to know what's, what they mean, what are the best rules. And, and secondly, is that from time to time. work out the best contract? I mean. You know, it seems like pretty much exactly the no, same. No, because the, no, the, the, the best contract is something that we can, I, because it's they imagine it's not it's not obvious what rule consequentialists want us to imagine, which in which outcome we should imagine ourselves uh, 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 acting, while con contractarianism talk. Okay, think about your present condition. What would be the best law? What would be the best law from now on? And they pick a certain privileged ex-ante standpoint. Uh, this is much, much easier, I think. Um, um, so, okay. What was your second point about sovereignty? Oh, that's right. I, I say, I don't, first of all, Locke, it seems to me, as far as I remember, As far as I remember, Locke would say that uh, the sovereign cannot have rights that was, were not given to him by his subjects. This is now people people might disagree with that, and I I don't think that my argument depends on the Lockean this Lockean doctrine, because what I'm saying is that it it, it is very plausible with respect to many rights, that if the sovereign has them in the 
uh, in a political society than individuals might have them uh, in a politically disorganized society. So it's not a universal claim, it's just raises the, it just strengthens the claim that individuals have them if the sovereign has them in, in a politically uh, organized society. So I don't, I, I don't commit myself to uh, the Lockean doctrine, although the Lockean doctrine is, is quite popular, I, I believe. Chris Kutz. It's actually, I'm not being one finger on Victor's, uh, Victor's point, but I, I guess it continues. Uh, Victor, you said um, skeptically you wouldn't think that uh, given realities of power that states would converge on an ideal rule. In fact, what one might expect is states to converge on rule and practice in another way, which is, in fact, what we have. We have one rule and major derogations by uh, leading powers. And I was thinking that that might be something you might want to talk about in the paper, which is that, in a way, the target isn't what is the rule, but what is the practice? What form of state practice? What This goes to the last, the last uh, question. What, form of, what forms of derogation might we want to see in a system? We probably want a gap between rule and practice to some extent. Probably don't yeah. want because of compounding problems. Mm -hmm. Institutions to manage that gap, sure. mine that gap. But sure. um, I mean, that, I would think that would be the focus of the contractarian analysis uh -huh. in a way. You know, what is the more complex practice that, yeah, I, I, that yeah. all would find in their interest? Um, I adopted the simplifying assumption that they are LP-respecting states, that decent states are, and and. In the Russian law of peoples, there is a clause that uh, that uh, nations are respect the agreement to which they subjected themselves. Uh, but this is something that should be weakened. I, I agree. This is something that should be weakened in in, in a more realistic analysis of the contractarian standpoint. That's right. Yes. Hi, Sean Richmond. I'm a DPhil student here at Oxford. Uh, thank you uh, for an interesting paper. Uh, I've come to this paper and the others early this morning from an international relations and an international law perspective, so I'm trying my best to uh, uh, come to speed with the uh, alien uh, experiments and, and, the, and, the, and the sub... Think non-lawyers. Yeah, the, the, the minute differences between uh, certain types of rights and, and, and the like. And I guess my question to you is, what are you seeking to ask and what are you seeking to prove? And you articulated as, why does international law define just cause for war so narrowly while natural law defines causes so broadly? Your thesis is that the drafters imagined a world that was, I think in your words, minimally uh, justified, symmetrical, Anarchy. Minimum, just minimal, uh, symmetric anarchy. And, and as I think Yanina. Uh, you uh, You're quoting me now. You don't quote, fr quote from the paper. I'm quoting you now. Oh, okay. Yes, yes, in response to, to Yanina. And also, as, as the point was raised over here about uh, state practice, perhaps, um, I wanted to suggest that if you're only seeking to answer a philosophical question, then comparing Rawlsian and Waltz, like Waltz's theories with uh, the, you know, the terms of the treaty, Article 51, it has, has a lot of purchase. Um, if you're seeking to, to demonstrate more, such as, as a historical case, uh, or in terms of the, 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 the legal standpoint, then you do need to get a bit more complicated that uh, right after World War II, Article 51 was articulated a certain way, but there's a drafting history for that. 
and certain states thought some things, and some of those views were actually quite uh, uh, social, uh, you know, international society type visions, and some were a lot more minimal. If you want to just focus on custom, and, and the law on self-defense exists both in the charter and in custom, then you are going to want to look at state practice. And for instance, the US and Israel has conducted a lot more military interventions and argued that they had legal rights to do so, protection of nationals, uh, the, ex you know, the expansion that you're talking the about. Um, and, and I don't, I don't want to isolate you, per se, because I also think, I, I, would, I, I would argue that the, the papers, as I read them uh, up till now, uh, could sometimes do a better job of giving a background to a non-philosophical professor about why this matters and, and the scope of one's claims, because if, um, if we seek to make it more than just a, you know, some territorial philosophical point between five experts, <laughs> then, thank you, <laughs> um, then, then some of these other issues can be addressed. And, and I'm not trying to say that your work, there are legal experts who can do the question you know, maybe in a better way, or historians that can do it better. But if, it, if you seek to have more purchase on your thesis, then, then those are some questions to think about. That's a big issue. <laughs> no, I, I humbly accept the critique. <laughs> no, really. And Shlomit is not here, but I might collaborate with the legal, uh, law professor on this issue. More questions? <laughs> okay, we can get a little uh, longer break than scheduled, but the deal is we really will start at uh, 3.45. <laughs> Thanks to... Uh